0: Good morning, my name is Robbie. I got a tan this week, just kidding. (laughs) My name is Micah Mariano, it is great to meet you. If I haven't met you, um, I have a long history with your church. Sadly, the first person I ever met from here was Mike Duff, so that is not good for you guys, it's not a good reputation. But um, I've been doing ministry to some degree with your church forever. My wife, Cammie, is from Artesia, so I love Artesia. Um, and am greatly impressed by your football program. Um, it's, y'all do, y'all still do fireworks like every touchdown? Does y'all still do that? That's insane, right? Um, and so Paul Dunbar and I grew up in the same town. We're from San Angelo, and our football program was terrible when we were in high school. So we don't, you know, this is like a dream uh, to, for y'all to have what you have. But anyways, I, I am so glad to be here with you today. It's a blessing to be asked to be part of this, this series, this Mission Emphasis week. Um, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 today. If you'll go ahead and turn there with me, Acts chapter 17. I want to talk today about a heart for the nations. You've been going through Acts 1:8, and this is the last part, that we, um, as witnesses of Jesus Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit, are to have a heart for the ends of the earth. Not just Artesia, not just New Mexico, not just the United States, but to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be. While you're turning there, let me just tell you a quick story that um, happened a couple years ago. I was preaching at a church in East Texas. Um, And East Texas, if you don't know very much about it, is still a fairly segregated place. There literally are churches in East Texas. Um, There's a white church and a black church on either side of the railroad tracks, and they'll talk about each other as those people. East Texas, if you remember 1998, a little town called Jasper, Texas, there were a group of high school boys, white high school boys, that tied up a black middle-aged man, um, to the back, a rope, and tied that rope to the back of their truck and drove around town until there was nothing of him left. This is East Texas, right? This is, this is East Texas. And so, as a brown guy who I'm not Mexican, I apologize for those of you who are like really happy there was a Mexican. I'm not Mexican. I'm as Mexican as you can get for not being Mexican. My dad's from the Philippines and my mom is white, so I don't have the Filipino nose. I have the, the white nose. So that's why in this part of the country I'm just Mexican. So I, I don't, I'm, you know, it's funny. I've been to the Philippines a few times and when I went to the Philippines the first time, all the Filipinos were like, you're not Filipino, you're Mexican. So I'm Mexican, I guess. It's just, I'm, I'm. So anyway, so I'm in East Texas as a brown guy preaching at this church, and they put me in this hotel. Um, I don't know how to describe it very well, except saying, you'll get it when I say this, the entire hotel smelled like curry. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I get to the hotel room, and I travel a lot. I stay in a lot of hotels, and so I get in, and my first impression is like, oh, no, you know. And I'm thinking about all these stereotypes, you know, this is... You know, they're, they're anyways, the, the, person, the person running the hotel was, was from India. And so I, I'm, I'm so bothered by all these things. I'm like worried that if I go to the hotel room for too long before I go to the church, I'm going to smell like curry when I get to the church. And then what are the church people going to think about me? They're going to be so confused because they're going to be like, wait a minute, you look like a Mexican, but you're Filipino and you smell like an Indian. Like, I don't know how to take you, you know, like I'm so worried about it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time looking at this hotel owner, as a person, and not someone who is technically interfering or interfering in my world, and I remember being so convicted after leaving the office, heading towards my hotel room with this like deep heart of like distaste for the smell and culture of Indians, and this hit me like, what if I thought about these people, this guy that owns this hotel? What if I thought about him as a person that needs Jesus instead of someone that's interfering in my life? What if my heart was actually for the nations of the world to know Jesus? What if my concern was less about my comfort in my world and more about people knowing Jesus. And so I want to show you this heart today, this, this shift of, hopefully for us, not much of a shift, but this shift of perspective where we move away from thinking that we are the center of the universe and to recognizing that God has empowered us by the Spirit to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just here, not just in your state, not just in your country, but around the world to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. Paul is, is about to take a journey, and he's waiting in this town called Athens um, for <clears throat> some friends to arrive, for Silas and Timothy to come, and it says in verse 16, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the mar- marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler say? wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, so Paul's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was just this group of people that would gather together and talk about philosophy and new ways of thinking. So Paul stands in front of this group of people in the Areopagus and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's join together in prayer and just ask God to bless this time. Father, we thank you for mornings like this when we can gather And worship together to sing your glory that you are worthy of and that we can open up your word today and just, God, hear from you. And so I pray this morning that you would speak to us and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What does it look like for us to have a heart for the nations, a heart for the peoples of the world? I want to just make a few observations from Acts chapter 17 this morning. Robbie told me I had about an hour and a half, so I want to... Just kind of dive in. Just kidding, not really. Um, Let me just make a few observations. First observation is from this section in Acts is that a heart for the nations is a heart broken for the lost world. Say broken. Come on, say broken. A heart for the nations is a heart broken for the lost world. Look in verse 16. It says, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. As he's looking around the city of Athens, it says that his spirit or his heart is provoked within him as he sees that these people are worshiping other gods. The word provoked here, it implies this deep, intense emotional concern. Paul didn't look at Athens and go, these people are ridiculous, immoral people, and they need to change their lifestyle. It says he was provoked. In other words, he had a deep emotional concern that these people wouldn't worship idols any longer, but will worship the one through, true God through Jesus Christ. A heart for the nations is a heart broken for the lost world. My wife and I have four sons, four boys, and a boy chocolate lab and a boy cat. It is a house full of boys. We are the antithesis of the dumb bars. Um, <laughs> We've joked about setting our kids up, you know, for the future. But we have four boys, and our youngest son, Hayes, is about to be five years old. When Hayes was born, um, my wife had to have a C-section. And I remember going into the the, the surgery room and feeling like, as I walked into that room, God was saying, Micah, trust me. That's not what you want to hear from God when you're walking into the birth of your child. And so I'm thinking, like, what, what, what's going to happen? And so um, they do the C-section, which is kind of cool and kind of crazy all at the same time. Um, little Hayes comes out, and he looks fantastic and phenomenal, and he's crying. And because God said, trust me, I'm, like, waiting every moment to see, like, what's going to happen with this baby? It wasn't like an audible—if you hear an audible voice of God, you're probably smoking something you shouldn't. But I really felt like in my heart, like, God was saying to me, trust me. And so uh, everything looked fine until the nurse started examining him and I noticed she made a weird face and I was like, oh no, what's wrong? And so they clean him up and didn't say anything about it and took us into the recovery room and uh, we, we were holding our baby and the nurse comes in and says, I gotta tell you something and my heart's dropping. I'm like, oh no, what's wrong? If you've had kids, you know what I'm talking about? Like this intense, like worry about what's gonna happen to your kids and she said, your son has something, we call a cleft palate and I'm like, you know, like that's fixable. That's, it's not a huge deal. And so I, I'm thinking, okay, maybe God's just like testing my heart whether I trust him or not. And so the, uh, we, get, we get into our, our uh, hospital room and we're hanging out with little Hayes. We're having to learn how to feed differently. He wasn't able to suck. A cleft palate means that there's a hole in the roof of his mouth. And so he wasn't able to suck or, or feed like he was supposed to. We're having to learn how to feed him new. But we're, we're enjoying this time with little Hayes and we send him back to the nursery that night so we can sleep for a few hours, and about two hours after we send him back to the nursery, the nurse from the nursery comes running in and says, there is something wrong with Hayes. I just sent him to the NICU. And so we're freaking out. Like, what's wrong? Well, the doctor comes in from the NICU and says, there is something wrong with Hayes's heart. She said, we just took some, some tests, and there are holes in his heart that aren't supposed to be there, and his heart's not beating like it's supposed to be. I, I am, I'm a fixer. I'm a troubleshooter. I want to know how, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I can watch a YouTube video to fix almost anything, you know. I can figure it out. And I remember the deep sense of, like, of lostness as I recognize in this moment, there is nothing that I can do to fix my son's heart. And so the only thing I was left with, and probably wasn't the best idea because it's a hospital, it's not super clean, I'm sure, I'm on my face on the hospital floor, pleading, God, fix my son's heart. God heal his heart and I have this like deep welling emotion inside of me because there's nothing I can do. And all I can do is cry out to God, God save his heart, save his heart, save his heart. That's what the word provoked means. When's the last time you were provoked for the salvation of the people of the world that brought you to a place where you were willing to even get on your face before God and say, God, I don't really like those people. I don't like the way they smell. I don't like the foods they eat. I don't like their culture. But God, save them. Save them. A heart for the nation is a heart broken for the lost world. Just so you know, the end of the story, um, the doctor said that there was a uh, specialist coming in the next day, a pediatric cardiologist, and he was going to look at the same test. And... Uh, Tell us what what we needed to do. I'm expecting to spend like the next few months at a you know a hospital with heart transplant stuff like that. Well, the doctor comes in the next day and says, uh, "The pediatric cardiologist came by and said everything looks fine on his heart." <laughs> the same tests that the doctor looked at the day before. Now, one of two things is true: either that doctor is an idiot who looked at the tests the first day, or my God healed my son's heart. Now, I can tell you what I believe. Look. I can feel it now. I can feel the emotion of the helplessness. Look, the world, we have no power in of ourselves to save the world. But the Spirit has come upon us as Jesus sent him to empower us to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. When has that brought us to a place where we are so emotionally broken for the salvation of the world that we put our prejudices aside and say, God, save them. That's how we should pray. God save the peoples of the world. So first thing tonight is a heart for the nations is a heart broken for the lost world. Second thing is a heart for the nations is willing to contextualize to other cultures for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 22 and 23. So, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. I proclaim to you. And then he begins to proclaim to them who God is a heart for the nation, is, is willing to contextualize to the other cultures for the sake of the gospel. What does that word contextualize means? It just means that you become to some degree part of that culture so that you integrate within them, within the confines of, of how that culture operates. Let me give you an example of contextualizing. I was sharing this with Robbie last night. Um, my dad asked me to go with him to a pastor's conference. My dad's a pastor um, earlier this spring and I'd just come home from an event where I was preaching like this and um, I, I, I didn't pack a new bag. I just took the clothes I had and jumped in the car with him and we drove to Fort Worth for a pastor's conference. Um, and and I, from the time I can remember, I've loved hats. Like, I love wearing hats. Um, I have lots of hats, and I love wearing hats. And so I just come back from this event. I was kind of tired. I hadn't taken a shower, and so I had on, uh, I think, a hoodie and a hat and some jeans. And so we walk into this pastor's conference, and we walk into the room, and, uh, you know, I don't know, there's 500 pastors in this room, and everybody's staring at me. And I'm like, is my fly down? You know, like... Smell, do I smell like curry? You know, I'm like, like, what, what is it? And then it hit me, huh? Nobody else is wearing a hat in this room. And there, and I could, I took my hat off and you could just see the relief across the room. Oh. He finally took his hat off in this sacred building. You know, that's contextualizing. When I recognized that the culture around me was like, this is not okay for you to wear a hat. You know what I did? I just took my hat off. A hat, listen, if a hat for you is an issue, then you've made too big of a deal out of something that's not that big of a deal. It's not a biblical model. It's not a biblical concept. In the same term, for me, I wasn't going to stand in the room of those pastors and go, this isn't a biblical model, deal with it. I just went, my bad, and took my hat off. Say contextualizing. Come on, big words. Say contextualizing. This is what it means to contextualize, to kind of become part of the culture. So what Paul does is he doesn't walk in and say, I'm a Jew and you're dirty pagans. I'm not supposed to be hanging out with you, so let me just tell you how you should live your lives. Now, what does he do? Look at verse 22 and 23 again. He's standing in the midst of them, in the midst of the Areopagus, and he begins to say, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. He contextualizes into their culture. He becomes part of their culture. He doesn't set himself apart as a Jew and them non-Jews and say, I'm going to speak to you from a high and lofty place. He becomes part of their culture. He contextualizes to their culture. How do we do that here and now? How do we contextualize? to the nations of the world even in artesian new mexico well first of all let me just give you a couple thoughts first thing is we can't let our cultural biases stand in the way of the gospel let me say that again you and i cannot let our cultural biases stand in the way of the gospel listen as a jew it wasn't okay for paul to be associating with those people his culture said you do not interact with those kind of people my my dad is from the philippines he told me that uh, when uh, my mom is from Clovis, and she's white, um, hence my nose. So when, when my dad asked my um, mom's dad if he could marry my mom, <laughs> um, it, it was still in the era. I think this is like mid to late 70s. This is still an era when that's not like the most acceptable thing. Like intercultural marriage um, was not the most acceptable thing. And you know, my, my grandpa's first question to them was, was what are people going to think of your kids? And my dad goes, that they're beautiful, you know, like... <laughs> Like, this is, you know, we, we can't let our cultural biases, even back in the day, of things like interracial marriage stand in the way of the gospel. What you, to believe, what you believe to be, like, morally upright, like, for example, maybe you come from a generation that says, don't wear a hat in the building. That's not the culture I come from. It's not a right or wrong decision. But if a hat or a not hat stands in the way of the gospel, then we have put our preferences in front of Jesus. We cannot let our cultural preferences stand in the way of the gospel. I play this sport called disc golf, frisbee golf. I started playing, I don't know, 15 years ago and realized that it's something I really enjoyed, something I um, grew to be pretty good at. And I also realized that this is a culture, the disc golf culture is a culture that needs Jesus, and there's not a lot of Jesus in the culture. I'll never forget, when I started playing disc golf, I had some Christian people say to me, you shouldn't be associating with those people. I said, why? And they said, well, because they smoke and they drink and they smoke the other stuff. And so you shouldn't be associated with it. What are people going to think about you if, if they see you playing disc golf with people that do all these things that aren't okay? And so I asked, who's going to tell them about Jesus? Obviously not you. If my cultural bias, it stands in the way of the gospel, how will the nations ever hear the message of Jesus? A heart for the nations means we contextualize the other cultures and the beginning of that is not to let our cultural biases stand in the way of the gospel. I have friends who live in Southeast Asia that I've met. They are they are native from Southeast Asia. I can't tell you where they're at for the sake of security. But these Southeast Asians have given up their jobs. They're, some of them were professors, some of them were teachers, some of them had businesses. They gave up their jobs because they had a heart to reach the Muslims in Southeast Asia. So they gave up their jobs and they are now living amongst the Muslims in Southeast Asia. And here's what they do. they dress like the Muslims, they eat like the Muslims, they contextualize into the Muslim culture, but they proclaim themselves to be followers of Jesus. That is never something that we waver on. But they live amongst the Muslims, they dress like them, they eat like them, they, they do the things that the Muslims do for the sake of the gospel. Let me give us a quick heart check this morning. Don't answer out loud, just think about it. How do you feel about Muslims? Are you more scared that they're going to blow you up or more scared that they're going to go to hell without Jesus? They need Jesus too. Just to be completely transparent with you, I, I don't, Muslims don't bother me. It's Mormons and Jehovah's Witness. I have a hard time remembering that they need Jesus too. Ah. But if I let my cultural biases about the stupidity of the things that those those doctrines teach, and not remember that the person standing at the door with a little tag needs Jesus just like the Muslims across the world do, then my personal preferences and my cultural biases have gotten in the way of the gospel. And we can't do that. We got to contextualize. We got to be part of their culture. We've got to be part of their culture. Second thought in contextualizing. Notice in verse 22. It says that, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus says, men of Athens, I perceive, say perceive, I perceive that you are very religious. We, we, we integrate into their culture. Paul wasn't standing back from afar saying, hey, I've heard stories about your culture. He is in the midst of them looking at their idols, looking at their inscriptions. And as he is part of their culture, as he is integrating into their culture, he begins to comment, I perceive that you are very religious. Second thought is we integrate ourselves into their culture. Listen, I think it's really easy for us as Americans, as fairly wealthy, probably the most wealthy people of the world to stand back and look at the nations and go, listen you need to be like us Christianity across the world we say to them you should look like us I've heard stories of of churches going to places like Africa and building church buildings with like air conditioning but then the church shuts down because Africans can't afford to pay for the air conditioning man Africans don't worship with air conditioning I've heard stories about churches in Africa and India that get together in a little mud hut with no windows for hours on end, reading the scripture and praying together and worshiping together. They don't need air conditioning, that's just part of their world. It's easy for us to stand back and say, You should look like us, but the reality is, is the world needs the gospel. They don't need our standards. We've got to integrate into their culture. I had a friend I met this summer who's now a pastor, was a youth pastor at a fairly big church in Lubbock. And he told me this story. Um, he said, I had to learn how to like integrate into my kids' culture. And he goes, and here's when I realized I wasn't very integrated into my students' culture. And he said, one night um, I was hanging out with, with the students and they asked me, hey, what am I? Gonna, what are you gonna do later tonight after we're done? Well, he had heard them use this phrase over and over again. If you don't know what it is, ask Robbie later, he'll explain it to you. This, this phrase is Netflix, Netflix and chill. Some of you know what that is. You'll understand the awkwardness of of it. It doesn't mean you watch Netflix and hang out. It means something a lot more intense, a lot more intimate. And so, uh, you catching my drift? Netflix and chill is, that's what it is. And so they said, what are you going to do after we get done? And he goes, I'm going to go home and Netflix and chill. At this point, he was single and maybe engaged. And the kids were like, oh! And he was like, what? We're just going to watch Netflix and hang out. And they were like, that's not what that means. And so he goes, I realized at that point, I hadn't actually integrated into their culture. I would set up a bunch of programs for them to come be part of what I was doing, but I had never actually become part of their world. We can't stand back from afar and say, world be like us. If you wanna be someone who has a heart for the nations like Paul, we gotta integrate into their cultures, learn their cultures, be part of their cultures. So we gotta integrate ourselves into their culture. Third observation I'd like to make from this text is a heart for the nations is always focused on the gospel and only the gospel. Let me say that again. A heart for the nations is always focused on the gospel and only the gospel. If you read from verse 24 to 31, when he talks about the unknown God and begins to tell them who this God is, he begins to just proclaim to them that, that God, the real God, the true God is the creator of everything. He is the one who gives everyone life and breath and being. He is the one who, who is going to judge and he has offered a chance for us to have life by bringing back to life his son, the one who was to come. Listen, a heart for the nations isn't worried about the nations being having our morals, isn't worried about the nations having our dress, is isn't worried about the nations having our wealth. It is only worried about the nations hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. A heart for the nations is only focused on the gospel and is always focused on the gospel. Period. I, I hear stories all the time which are fantastic that, you know, churches are doing things like building water wells in Africa. And I love it, but can I just tell you? That if that water well is not associated with the gospel, what are we doing? We're sending people to hell. Well, you know, they're not thirsty. What point is that? But if I go to Africa and build a water well as a means to integrate into the culture so that I can proclaim to them Jesus, yes. If I go to a place and put a roof like in wherever you guys are in in South America and just put on a roof with no gospel, it is pointless. But if I go there and put on a roof as a means to integrate into the culture so that I can proclaim to you Jesus, yes. Can I just tell you that that even happens and can't happen here in Artesia, New Mexico? There's other cultures here. There's other peoples here than what you're comfortable with. And when you take down your cultural biases and say, my heart is for these people to know Jesus, whether I like their culture or not, whether I think they're politically right or not. Listen, if politics gets in the way of the gospel, we have greatly mistaken ourselves as people who are proclaimers of Jesus. Have your opinions, but let those opinions not ever go in front of Jesus. Like you, you have opinions on you know, how other cultures should be, but listen, a heart, for the, a heart for the nations is always focused on the gospel and only the gospel. Can I remind you today from Acts 1.8 that the power of the gospel rests in the Holy Spirit and not in us? Amen. We are simply empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses. It is not our responsibility to save the world. We are simply the messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of whether or not people hear the message and put their faith in Jesus doesn't rest on us, it rests on the Spirit. Some of you never talk about Jesus because you're afraid you don't know how to do it. Can I just tell you, the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now alive in you. The message does not rest in you. God, just asking for your hearts. Like, give me your heart. Have a heart for the people of the world to know the gospel. They need to know the gospel. For some of us, a heart for the nation simply means we're consistently and passionately praying for the salvation of the people around the world. Like if that's you and you're not able to ever leave Artesian, New Mexico, or you don't want to leave Artesian, New Mexico, how can you be part of this? Just Pray. Just pray. Be provoked in your heart. Be provoked in your spirit. A deep emotional concern that the world hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray. Be a church that prays for the nations. Some of us, a heart for the nations means we're using our financial resources to help take the gospel to the world. And I know of this church, you guys are really good at that. So keep doing it. Keep doing it. Listen, God didn't didn't give America wealth for America. God gave America Believers in America, wealth, so that we can be proclaimers of the kingdom of God and fund the kingdom of God around the world. Listen, if you're hoarding for yourselves treasures on earth, stop. The gospel is way more important than those things. Use our financial resources to take the gospel to the world. For some of us, a heart for the nations literally means we pack our things and go. And go. And can I just tell you, if you're gonna go, just know that not everybody has toilet paper, (laughs) not everybody eats the same foods. Not everybody has comfortable rooms and comfortable beds. Listen, but if your heart is for the nations, those things don't really matter that much because the gospel is what's important. And you and I have to be the kind of people, we need to be the kind of people whose heart is so bent on the world hearing the gospel that we're willing, even if just for a time, to forsake the conveniences that we're used to so that people can hear the message of Jesus Christ. I'd like to just close this morning by just telling you a couple stories about things that are going on around the world. So hopefully you can leave here encouraged about what is happening to the nations. Um, about 10 years ago, I met a, a guy. His name was Gatana Gatana. <laughs> he was a pastor in the Sudan for a very long time and now lives in the U.S., working with a group of people called the Voice of the Martyrs. It's an organization that kind of brings awareness to uh, the Christian martyrs around the world. Gatana Gatana, I met him, and he was telling me some stories about the Sudan. If you don't know about the Sudan, the Sudan is a very Muslim area and it's a very radical radicalized muslim area and so uh gatana gatana as a pastor as a follower of jesus christ obviously was not liked very much by the majority of his culture in fact one time he said that they they kidnapped him some muslim rebels kidnapped him strung him to a tree by a rope and put a pot of boiling water underneath him and said renounce jesus and he said no and they would lower him down to like his calves into this boiling pot of water and then pull him back up and say renounce jesus and he'd say no and over and over he showed me his feet and they were disgusting But he continued to be steadfast because his faith rests in Jesus and not in his circumstances. Then he told me this. He said, one time, Micah, we had a service and about 40 people put their faith in Jesus Christ. 40 Muslims renounced their faith and said, we put our faith in Jesus. And he said, so we we planned to have a baptism service, I think the next week, at a a river that wasn't too far away. And in that week, I guess some Muslim rebels had heard that they were going to do a baptism service. Now listen, for us, baptism is kind of a... To to be completely honest, most of us we think it's kind of a mediocre thing. We don't feel the weight of what baptism is in so many other cultures. For a Muslim to be baptized into the name of another God means you're renouncing your culture, you're renouncing your family, you're renouncing everything that is of value. That you've ever had and saying I am moving on to something else and so for them it was a huge deal to be baptized in the name of Jesus because this was a statement to their culture to their families we're renouncing Allah and we are proclaiming faith in Jesus and so they gathered to this river the next week to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and two Muslim rebels showed up and told those 40 or so people if you go into the river and are baptized in the name of Jesus when you come out on the other side we will shoot you And one by one, every single one of those people, brand new believers, went into the river because they were so compelled by the good news of Jesus Christ. And they came out of the river and were shot. That's the power of the gospel. So they died with nothing. No, they died with everything. I met some missionaries in Southeast Asia um, who <clears throat> were in a part of Southeast Asia that had a lot of islands. And there was one particular island that they had um, had a desire to go to. They were locals in this country. The missionaries were locals from this country. And this this, this island had never been reached, not even by, and I'm not talking just missionaries and followers of Jesus, but never been reached by the outside world. There had been people who had tried to go in, but the, the tribe that lived on this island would not let any outsiders ever come in. But they thought, you know what, we're, we're, we want to be proclaimers of Jesus to these people, so let's try it. And so they showed up one day in a boat, and they parked on the beach, and just kind of stood there and waited, because they didn't want to get killed. And they said, when they pulled up in the boat, the strangest thing happened. A bunch of kids from the, from the village came running up to greet them, and the kids brought them into the village. And they said everybody was really hospitable. And so we stayed there for about three days, hung out and got to know the people, and then we left. And then they sent a message back to the village elder a few weeks later and said, hey, would it be possible for us to come talk to you about actually living and being part of your your tribe, part of your culture? And they sent a message back and said yes. And so these missionaries went back to the island and sat down with the elder, and they said, hey, just out of curiosity, Why did you let us come in, and why are you letting us come in now? Because you've never let outsiders come in before. He said, well, first, um, every time an outsider shows up, our kids run and hide in the woods because they're so scared of, of outsiders. But when you guys came, for whatever reason, our children came up to greet you, and we thought that was different and interesting, so we're intrigued. Secondly, while you were here, we poisoned your food, and you didn't die. And so we want to know what God it is you serve that kept you from dying from our poisons. Can I tell you one more story? I had a friend, acquaintance in high school that was part of churchy stuff, but because of the hypocrisy of his friends who claimed to be followers of Jesus, grew a deep distaste for Christianity and a deep distaste for Jesus. And as long as I knew him, he wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus. And then I heard a story about him and his wife. They were on the brink of divorce, And someone told them, hey, before you get divorced, will you go meet with a pastor one time? So they went and sat down with this pastor. This pastor talked to them about Jesus. And then not too long after that, um, that that couple put their faith in Jesus. People who had never wanted anything to do with Jesus Jesus put their faith in Jesus. Put their faith in Jesus. Not too long after that, that person said, I feel a call to ministry. And today he is your children's pastor here at Faith Baptist Church. Paul Dunbar, can I just tell you the same spirit that kept the missionaries from dying from the poisoned food, the same spirit that gave the confidence to the Sudanese new believers to stand up for the gospel in the midst of death, is the same spirit that works here in Artesia, New Mexico to save people. A heart for the nations doesn't mean I just look at the world and say, those people need Jesus. A heart for the nations translates to here in Artesia, New Mexico. Don't tell me you have a heart for the nations if you don't have a heart for Artesia, if you don't have a heart for New Mexico, if you don't have a heart for the U.S. We are witnesses of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit to be proclaimers of the gospel. So can we just do that? Can we just do that? life is so fickle and it's so short. And some of us are spending our time doing What? Seeking to attain some kind of lofty goal that will have no impact in eternity. I'm not saying quit your job. I'm not saying stop pursuing your dreams. But what's your heart? Is your heart to grow up so much in the company so you can have so many raises so you can have all this plush stuff, or is your heart to move up in the company to be integrate yourselves into that culture so that God can use whatever money you get from your promotions to be a proclaimer of the gospel? What's your heart? What's my heart? We can't waste our lives doing something that is no eternal value. Let us be people who recognize that we have been empowered by the coming of the Holy Spirit, to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let that be our mantra. Let that be our life's goal. Let that be our driving passion to say, I want the world to know Jesus. Let me just invite you just with your eyes closed for a moment this morning, just to begin to ask in your own heart, ask God, God, what is my heart about? Do I have a heart for the nations? Do I have a heart for the peoples of the world, even the people I don't particularly like, to know Jesus? And maybe you're here as you, you, you keep praying, you keep asking, if you're here this morning and you recognize, hey, that's not my heart, maybe you could just in a moment of silence just say, God, break my, break my stiff heart and soften it. And God, remind me this morning that I'm here to be a proclaimer of Jesus. I live to be a proclaimer of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel a tug on your heart like God's saying, Go. Pack your bags and go. Look, if that's you, that happens. On Sunday mornings like this, it happens where someone, the spirit moves in someone's heart and they say, I feel called to go reach a people of the world. Listen, if that's you this morning, I'm not even gonna ask you to wait. If you feel a tug on your heart this morning, and you, wanna, you feel like God's saying, go, go be a missionary somewhere, I want you to just stand up right now and go catch one of the pastors at the back, Mike back here, Robbie back here, and just say, I feel like God's leading me to go. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a church person. You've never really had a lot to do with Jesus. Maybe someone invited you today and you hear these stories and you hear this text and you have this curious thought, like what is this Jesus thing about? And maybe your heart stirred a little bit this morning. Maybe you hear stories about someone like Kanye West and you go, if someone like that can put their faith in Jesus, maybe I can too. Maybe God's tugging at your heart this morning. Listen, if you're here this morning and you say, I wanna talk to someone about putting my faith in Jesus, I don't wanna live my life in this wretched world anymore without someone like him who can give me hope who can give me joy, who can give me a purpose. If you're here this morning and you say, I want to know Jesus Christ, as soon as I say amen, I'm going to pray for us. I want you to go grab one of the pastors at the back and say, I want to know Jesus. I'm going to pray. When I say amen, we're going to sing. And if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ who is compelled this morning by the scripture, by the word of God, to be a proclaimer of the gospel, empowered by the spirit, as soon as I say amen, you stand up and you sing with all your heart for the God who has given us life. Father, what a joy it is to say that we are your children. That we who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we who once were your enemies are now called your beloved. Father, what a joy and satisfaction it is to know today that that our life doesn't rest in our circumstances. That our life doesn't rest, our worth doesn't rest in how well we do at work or how well we do in life, but it rests simply in the reality that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are now declared righteous in your sight. We are now declared children of God, and I pray that that would be a driving force. God, remind us today that we are empowered by your Spirit to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that would be the kind of life that we would live. So God, stir our hearts today. Give us a heart for the nations, and I pray this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.